Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 2016 episode of Consult. I've got a great guest on the show, Dan Lorenhertz. He is the founder of Lineheart Software. He's worked with some amazing clients, people like Coffee Meets Bagel and the Black Tux. I also want to remind everybody, please leave us a review on iTunes. That can help the show. And recommend our episodes on Overcast. Well, we've got a really long interview for you today, so I'm going to get right into it. Hope you enjoy this interview with Dan. So my guest today on the show is Dan Lowenhertz. He's the founder of Lionheart Software. He's been involved in some incredible projects over the years. Dan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Lionheart Software, and then we'll go back and talk about you. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so Lionheart is a software studio. Uh, we work with startups uh, and products for early, for companies making internal products that are new. I've been doing this for about five years, um, and yeah, just uh, I've really sort of, initially it was just sort of slow to get business. Uh, startups weren't as big now as are there then when I started as they are today. But um, but yeah, so I I'm basically a jack of all trades. I talk with founders uh, who are usually technically not super inclined, uh, not saying that they're not, you know, familiar with technology, but most of the people who I work with are not programmers. They've never built a product before. And I help them work through the process of ideation, uh, and building something out that, you know, is brand new and, uh, you know, is generally something that is somewhat, uh, radical. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of crazy ideas seen a lot of things fail and uh, most most of my clients fail which is sort of difficult but it's just a fact of the trade uh, but the ones that succeed tend to be things that a lot of people hear about so that's also cool too absolutely let's talk a little bit about you personally how did you first get into computing going way back uh, wow um, way way back I mean I my personal first memory is like, I mean, I don't even remember the year, but it must have been like on some old, old Mac or IBM playing Reader Rabbit uh, as a kid. Um, that was probably like the first thing I ever, ever did on a computer really. Maybe playing some, maybe playing around with some basic okay. <laughs> before. Yeah. I mean, so that was a long time ago. Um, but well, I how, think, how'd you go from that into software development? So where was the first inklings of software development? Maybe you were playing around with basic and where'd you decide, I really want to pursue this as something that's a big, meaningful part of my life, software development. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it's always been a hobby to me. Uh, and then it just turned into a job, which I guess is, the, I mean, really the best way to go about it. <laughs> I guess I'm lucky, but what really happened was I think I was really into I, I was really into the internet making HTML web pages and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I think what first did it for me was uh, you remember Java applets? Sure, of you course. Know, that, that was a thing. 
Um, so that that like came about at the same time as like what was called DHTML, which is just essentially like JavaScript. Um, but Java was supposed to be like this really cool new thing. Um, and so I thought, yeah, that would be really neat to have this interactivity on a, on a website that I make. So that sort of spiraled into learning Java. I don't even remember how old it was. It must have been like 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, it sort of just kept going from there. You know, I think I, I wrote a few Java applets. Um, and I was really into StarCraft. So then I wrote like, a, you know, an, uh, a Java application that like stored unit, you know, uh, abilities. Um, <laughs> So it just started off sort of silly. I, I think, you know, and by the time I got to college, it was more financial related, uh, financially related. So the pro- programs that I wrote were more based on that. Um, but it was always sort of in the back of my head, like, maybe this is what I want to do. But I never really thought about it like that. It was all like, this is fun and I enjoy doing it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you go on to Yale. Tell us about your experience at Yale and how it prepared you for your career. Uh, I mean, frankly, so Yale's not very, uh, very well known for its uh, computer science uh, curriculum. Uh, there, there are many people who've graduated from Yale who are very popular in the computer science world. I mean, I think the founder of Fog Creek Software um, graduated from there. Uh, but sure, Joel, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just, it's not, um, it doesn't have the same clout or um, really strength in the faculty like a school like Stanford or whatever does. Um, so it's, I didn't really go there expecting to really focus on computer science and software engineering. It just wasn't what I, I was interested in there. Um, so what I actually studied um, applied math there. Um, and it was sort of, my opinion was that it was a good mix between um, having a good breadth of understanding in, um, you know, I, I guess like hard math <laughs> um, and being able to take numbers and, and do something with them. And really, high, that's really high level, but that's sort of what I was going at. Um, so things like statistics, uh, machine learning, um, and taking taking things which are a little abstract and and getting meaningful data out of it. Um, and this entire time, I mean, the thing that I'm thankful about. So getting back to like your original question, thing that I'm thankful about is really um, having the ability to uh, use my prior experience um, and put that put that to use. You know, like so I think. Um, my senior project was like rearranging the keys on a keyboard to find like the most efficient placement of keys. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't known how to like program. Uh, cause a lot of it involved like writing a program that, you know, generated a key layout and calculated the distance between keys. Um, so that was definitely helpful, but I, I really have to say though that like, um, you know, it's nice to go to a place where uh, everyone's really, um, really hardworking uh, and wants to, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, like wants to do things uh, meaningful. Um, and 
Uh, yeah, so really the, the friends that I made there uh, was by far the, the most uh, valuable thing for me. I mean, both, both professionally and personally. Like, I met my wife there, so I really don't yeah. think I could have uh, done better than that. So, yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. No, definitely. Sort of I, I think one thing people wonder about um, with elite colleges is how much the network has helped you later on in your career. So in consulting, how much has the network that you made at Yale been beneficial? Uh, I'd have to say it's been hugely beneficial. Um, I mean, that's not to say, I, I mean, it's a, it, I'll, I'll take a step back. It's sort of a hard question to answer. Um, I think first of, first off, like a network means nothing if you can't deliver. Um, and frankly, um, when I first started consulting, none of the, none of my friends at school, like were running companies, raising money, looking for people like me, like there, there wasn't really a market for that. And to top it off, I mean, startups just weren't like, they weren't as big a thing then as they were now. Uh, really the big thing when I graduated school was finance. Uh, everyone wanted to get into like an investment bank. Um, and this was like right as things were starting to implode um, in 2008. But um, so from that perspective, it didn't really help. But a few years down the line, like when people were starting to like start companies and raise money and look for people, it certainly was a, a huge benefit. But personally, I, I think it was more just um, having a group of people, you know, and my the company I founded uh, out of school with my two college friends, uh, Rich and James. Um, like, you know, we met each other through school. I can't say we got much work through our network, but um, having each other was definitely like a great benefit. Um, you know, we're all smart, we're all hardworking, um, and it, it definitely helped. Um, I can't say it helped much for finding work though. Uh, that I feel like was just pure grit. Uh, that really took it home. So, yeah. Okay. Tell us about that first company that you founded outside of college with your friends from college. Uh, what was that and uh, how did it develop? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the company is called Elm City Labs. Um, so New Haven, where Yale, um, Yale is, is uh, I mean, its nickname is Elm City. So we thought it was sort of clever, but it really wasn't. It was just, it was a cute name. And, um, we wanted to, at the time, like lab companies were a big thing. Um, and as three like fresh face college graduates, we thought it'd be really fun to make a company, uh, that shot out ideas and, um, and, and saw which ones worked. And if the ideas would work, we would stick with them. Um, and it, Honestly, I, th I think it's a really cool concept for a company, but uh, when push came to shove, it's just really hard to uh, <laughs> to uh, make money with it. Um, you know, a lot of companies, especially if you're bootstrapped and you're not raising any money and you're trying to make an idea work, um, you have to see it through for many years before you're going to see a return on your investment. And um, it's, so it just made it a little difficult. As a result, <laughs> our attention turned somewhat to freelancing, uh, which is where we, we really got our start and where, where I really sort of got my initial consulting experience. Okay. 
And yeah. how do we go from Elm City Labs to Lionheart Software? Um, so the progression, in, in my opinion, it's it it was pretty it was pretty quick, um, and it was pretty it needed to happen for me. Um, both Rich and James lived in New York City, uh, and at the time I was based in Los Angeles. Um, so what ended up happening is that I would be I'd be flying into New York for about 10 days every month. And this was going on for about a year and a half. Um, and that schedule is just brutal. Like to anybody, it's just, it's so hard to keep that up. Um, especially when you're not sleeping on your own, in your own bed for a third of the year, it, it takes a toll after a certain amount of time. Uh, so towards the end of that, like combined with the fact that we hadn't really hit on like a product that really uh, hit home with uh, Elm City Labs is just like it sort of made it an easy decision for me to say like I don't really want to fly for a third of my time and not sleep in my bed a third of the time and I sort of just want to like take a break and figure out what I want to do um, and so at that time I, I left Elm City um, and I gave myself like a couple of months to like rethink things uh, and just by pure coincidence uh, I went to a, um, a meetup in, in Santa Monica uh, and met someone who was interested in building something and it sounded really cool. Um, so it's sort of just my consulting practice sort of just like organically went from there. Um, so, yeah. How did your co-founders take the breakup of Elm City Labs and did you break up the clients that you had previously as well? Did you take some of the clients with you and they took some or how did you do that split? I mean, this the split was really um, amicable. I mean, I think we all understood that we weren't really going the direction that we initially started in. Um, and secondly, um, you know, they, I think they all understood that like it was really difficult on me to travel to New York. And in fact, towards the end, we were even talking about moving to the city, um, but it's just not something we were interested in doing. Um, so it was, it was sort of just going in that direction. So that's number one, um, regarding the clients, like, um, I didn't take any of the clients from ECL. Um, a lot of it was just me towards the end. I was helping, uh, finish out my involvement. So there were a lot of things that I was working on. Um, but my goal really was to make the transition really easy. Uh, and that's what I did. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. So Lionheart's getting started. How do you go about attracting your first few clients? Or is it a lot of it word of mouth from clients that you had before at Elm City Labs? Um, so it's a little bit mix of both. Um, I, I've always had, now maybe this, is, this doesn't really work for um, an industry in which there's uh, not as much demand as software engineering, but my opinion has always been that if I do really good work and if I'm a really good communicator and I just like let people know what I'm doing, everything else will sort of come together. Um, <laughs> so I've always really, really, really deprioritized business development, I guess in the traditional sense. Like I've never really felt uh, a need to you know, for lack of a better word, like network. Um, and I, I don't know if this is just like how I view networking or, 
or just my general business philosophy. But um, I feel like networking for the sake of networking is just never something I've done. Uh, business development for the sake of business development is never really something I've done. Uh, I've always just, um, you know, if I'm if I'm interested in learning about something, I'll go to a meetup. And if I meet someone there and I'm interested in talking to them, I'll talk to them. And if something comes from that, that's great. But it's not necessarily something that I planned on uh, or was like, you know, hoping to get out of it. Um, now, with regards to like other clients and ECL clients, um, you know, I think a lot of, um, you know, like I said, I, th I think uh, a fair number of the people who I worked with were happy with my work um, and they knew that I was still doing what I'm doing. Um, so if someone came along that was interested in building a web application and was starting a startup, uh, I think I was generally going to be at the top of their list. Um, so it sort of organically grew from there. Uh, I, I really want to say that there was like some like grand plan, but, uh, <laughs> it's, this has just been how I do it. I just sort of like roll along and, uh, really try and focus on the work above everything else. Uh, and hope everything else works out. Okay. Well, a little bit of inside baseball for the audience. Um, Dan is actually the first person I've had on the show who I've actually met in person. Uh, we met through our mutual friend, Carter, who you went to Yale with, right? Yep, yep. So, Dan, tell us about some of the uh, larger projects that you've worked on with Lionheart Software. I know there's a couple that are pretty famous. In fact, you worked on Coffee Meets Bagel. I actually met my girlfriend through that, so thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> How did these these large projects come about? And tell us about the ones that have been the most memorable to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the funny thing it's it's all um, I think it's like a math, um, just a matter of like math. Um, if you have a lot of inputs and all of these inputs are startups, and ninety percent of them disappear, um, and then the other ten percent end up growing, and the startups. Startups generally just don't stay small. They tend to grow. Um, so just by virtue of that fact, like 10% of the clients I work with generally become sort of well-known and famous. Um, and Coffee Meets Bagel happened to be one of those. Uh, and yeah, I, I, it's so funny because um, it's such a weird feeling to work on a product that no one has heard about. And uh, two years later, everyone everyone knows what it is and you're like <laughs> what what happened to this like small three-person company that I started working with like where did that go um, so that that's sort of funny to me but um, but yeah so how do I meet them I mean it really just just like any other client and when you work when you create a niche for yourself and like you know I'm pretty um, I'll pretty confidently say that my niche is startups when you do that you tend to be known, and I, I think this is just how I tend to get startup clients, you tend to be known as the startup guy. I, that's sort of how uh, CMB came around. I think actually, I think Carter actually emailed with the founder of CMB way back when they were having some, um, and I'll just go into the story of how I met them. Um, he had some ideas with about their um, their algorithms. I th I'm not sure if he was using it or not, but... Um, you know, and he had a back and forth with the former CTO, I think, and introduced me to them because they needed some technical help. And at the time, they just weren't, they didn't need it. And I, 
I'll add in here, brief aside, that uh, it's really, really important um, as a consultant to be patient. (laughs) Uh, I know it can be really hard when you're like trying to make money and that next um, check is really important, but uh, I've never really pressured anybody to get started on something or to get started on work. And uh, CMB was a, a situation where I think about six months passed between the time when I was introduced to them and when they actually needed me. When that time actually came, they really, really, really needed me because uh, their CTO left the company. So they didn't really have anyone leading the technical staff. They needed someone to take, take up that role. Um, so at that time I was like, sure, <laughs> I've got some time and it sounds really fun. And in, in that, um, period between when I got introduced and when, uh, I actually started working for them, I learned a lot more about the product and I saw a lot more of the value proposition. And it's always been important to me to work on things, which I feel like actually have a market, you know, some, some hope in the market for success. It, it's especially when you're working with startups, you never want to work with a startup who you feel like could go out of business next week. You want to work with a startup who you feel like has a really solid business model and um, can actually uh, have the, the money in the bank account to pay you. So those two things combined, I felt confident in them. Uh, I love their founding team. Um, and uh, so I just took it up and started running with them. Um, I could go into the technical stuff, but that's essentially how I met them and started working with them. So, Dan, tell us about some other memorable projects that you've worked on for Lionheart. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one one project and one company that I am incredibly proud of uh, is one that, um, I mean, you remember when I was talking about like going to a meetup and meeting somebody? I mean, this was actually one of those where I... Um, now, I'll preface this by saying I, I almost never go to meetups. I'm a very, <laughs> I'm very much an introvert. I don't really like going out too much. I'm happy to talk to people one-on-one. It's just like the way I communicate best. Um, but uh, yeah, so I decided, you know, I was bored. Maybe a month or two had passed uh, since I stopped working with ECL. Um, and I decided... Um, you know, it might have been my wife, actually, um, who was sort of like, you need to get out of the house. So um, I go to this meetup hosted by uh, a dev shop in Santa Monica um, called Carbon 5. And they were having a, uh, a talk on method swizzling in Objective-C. So you think to yourself, like, this is like going to be a programmer-heavy meetup. You're never going to see <laughs> Like, and I wasn't going there with any expectation of anything. I was just interested in the meetup talk itself. Um, And so I go there, uh, and sitting across the table from me uh, was um, the founder of this company called The Black Tux. Um, And he ran through the idea with me, you know, sort of like the 10-second pitch, which was, you know, renting tuxedos really sucks. um, And... I immediately agreed with him having just gotten married like a year before and it having been a pretty horrible experience. So right off the bat, I was really interested in the idea. I talked to him for a little bit about the meetup 
or what we were discussing at the meetup, and he had no clue what was going on. Uh, so uh, he made it pretty clear up front that he just wasn't um, he wasn't technical, and they were looking for someone who um, who could help them there. Um, and I think just you know we really hit it off, um, and we exchanged contact info. And I think uh, after a few meetings after that, we just got coffee. Uh, we decided that we were good fits for each other and um, started working together. Now, the Black Tux is, I mean, many people might not, you know, not as many people might know of the Black Tux compared to someone or a company like Coffee Meets Bagel, uh, which is really popular in the dating space. Um, but the Black Tux, like, by all accounts, they've they've totally killed it. And I hate using that phrase, but... I think they've raised about forty million in venture capital. Wow! Uh, their team is probably like seventy plus people now. I mean, they've really done a great job, and um, I, um, I, I think from the time after I met them to the day that we launched, um, I think about three or four months had passed. And after launch, I was sort of just like their de facto tech person as a consultant and just help them pretty much at every point along the way. And now something that I'll say is that uh, my deal with pretty much every company um, and every startup that I work with is that I will help you for as long as you want me to, but my real bread, um, like just meat and potatoes skill set is like zero to six months. Uh, from like the day you start the company to six months after after that. Anything more than that is just like, uh, beyond what I'm really capable of dealing with. Uh, I'm not one big on growing teams and um, dealing with politics and asking people for permission. That's just, it's not what I'm used to. So I told them that and they understood. Um, and so I think I ended up, um, even knowing that, I think they we continued working together for about two years. And at that point, I finally helped them onboard a VP of engineering. Um, and I think six months ago they found a CTO. So I'm still around just like helping answer, you know, here technical questions really here and there, but, uh, there I'd say they're fully, um, off boarded now. Um, but yeah, so they're, I'd have to say that they're, they're one of my faves. Um, they've done really well and, uh, I'm proud to say that they were a client. Um, all great people. When, when you first meet these startups that end up being rocket ships, what kind of situation are they in terms of fundraising? Have they raised a Series A? Are they still at a seed round? What point in their fundraising do you typically meet them at? Uh, you know, there's, there's no hard and fast rule, really. What I will say, though, is that if you're a non-technical founder and you're not able to raise money, uh, it's going to be really hard to find uh, someone to build your product for you, unless unless they're a true co-founder. I and I think that the re- the reason I'm really saying that is that um, it's a you know it's a red flag in a lot of ways if you if you can't um, if you can't rally the troops um, to give you money for lack of a better word. Um, so I do take that as sort of a, uh, a meter stick to understand, like, are these people worth working with? Are they, are they really, do they really, um, are they really throwing all of their energy behind it? Cause I, I do believe that 
if your sole job is fundraising and you've got a really awesome idea uh, and you bring a lot to the table, you can raise money not being a technical founder. It's definitely hard, but harder than, than it might be being a technical founder. But I, I actually think that in a lot of ways, non-technical founders have a huge leg up because once they do raise money um, and they do find someone who's willing to work on the product, um, they can focus all of their attention on uh, things which technical founders um, have, a, have a tendency to overlook. Um, and not just that, but um, if your only job is, is, making, is dealing with, quote, the business, um, that's all you can really do. So all of your energy is going to be focused on marketing, fundraising, uh, business development, recruiting, all these things which people like me who only care about, like, <laughs> what theme I have in my text editor, like, are going to have a tougher time with. And, you know, it works for me, too, because my, when my focus is 100% building out the product and making it look good and making it work great, it's sort of a nice split of responsibilities. Uh, and my job, essentially, is to offload that stress uh, until they feel comfortable in bringing on someone full-time for a CTO role. Fair enough. That's a really great point, too, for everybody. I mean, I think everybody who works as a consultant in this industry gets a lot of spam coming in saying, please work for me for equity, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And most of the times, if you're, if you're sending that out, you must be very desperate. Um, yeah, so yeah. It's not a good situation to be in. Yeah, um, definitely not. And I've gotten, that, um, I've gotten that request to work for equity. I mean, just like anyone else who's been a consultant developer, countless times and uh i mean there's really no good response except no <laughs> uh i mean the thing is if there's um if there's a really solid business case and for some reason no one else has seen it and i mean really what you're doing is you're you're giving them a loan of your time and um you know you would never I mean, it is so rare to go to any sort of angel investor or venture or VC uh, firm and say, no one else has invested in me, but will you give me like $100,000? And 100K is probably like a safe bet for building out an MVP, a really nice MVP. And I think people would look at you with crazy eyes. Like that would never happen. Right. Um, so as consultant developers, I think it's important to understand that when people ask you for your time, they're asking you for money, and you've got to ask yourself, like, is this an investment that I really feel strongly in? So, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's, it's just really something that um, you need to be prepared to deal with. So, Dan, when you come on to a new project and the project seems like the scope is large enough that you're not going to be able to do it yourself, how do you build out the team? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the short answer is that if... If something, if the scope of a project is uh, too big for one person to handle, then it probably needs to be scaled down. And I truly believe that. I think um, there are too many risks in a startup to try, like it, it really will hurt you more than help you to try and make a product too all-encompassing before you truly understand your business. And I've seen this happen so many times, really what I try to really impress upon um, any company I work with is that 
if your product seems like it needs to be built by two or three or four people, then we really need to trim it down. Um, we really need to get to the crux of what you're trying to solve. And once we do that, and it's still too big, then we can talk about that. But in my in my experience, it's never happened. Um, it's yeah. So Dan, when you say two, three, or four people is too much often for an MVP, what about the design aspects of the project? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I um, so when I say like two, three, four people, I I really just mean pure programming, like two plus developers. It's that's getting to be a I'd say almost subs go for an MVP, but um, that's sort of um, tan- it's a it's a different um, group of personnel than I would want to put on the design part of the project. And so you could have one developer, one designer, uh, and two co-founders. And while that's four people total, that's probably a fair personnel count for an MVP. And so. In terms of dealing with that, um, Lionheart Software doesn't employ any designers. It's really hard to do that as a uh, as a smaller software consultancy. The real issue is that design is a really personal thing, and I've seen so many founders like go for completely different design uh, styles. Um, and if you've got one person on your staff, um, I mean, unless they're really good, and there are a lot of really good designers who can who can handle multiple styles and, um, and really satisfy a large group of people. But in my opinion, it's just, it's really hard to do that. So yeah, I mean, when it comes down to, um, that part of the project, um, I've got a group of people who I've worked with in the past. Um, and, uh, I'll introduce them to my clients and really have them do the work and figuring out who works best for them. Uh, and I try to be a really unbiased party there. Um, sometimes clients will come to me with designers, um, and I will work with that. I'm uh, really the key is being flexible and just having the uh, ability to sort of speak out if something in the design doesn't really work for you. Uh, and I do like being a really active member of that. But um, but yeah, so I hope that answers. Yeah, and, and how do you handle project management between you, the designer, and the client? Is the client kind of in charge of that aspect of the project, or is it you managing the designer? It sort of depends on the client. When you're dealing with groups of people, who, like when you're dealing with founding teams that are so small, like two, three people at most, sometimes one person on the founding team um, has, you know, a breadth of uh, project management experience. So in a case like that, I would tend to like take a back seat and uh, let them do what they do best. And other projects, you know, this is another projects like what I'll sometimes see is that um, the founders have had absolutely no software development experience at all. And in those situations, I will I will carry the torch uh, and I'll 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 lead the project management process. Um, Meaning, you know, I'll set up weekly scrums, uh, I'll work with the designer, I'll get on phone calls with the designer, the founders, and me, go through that, you know, process of making sure that everything works and makes sense before we actually start building the thing. I know that you work on a lot of iOS projects, you work on a lot of web projects. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the technology that you like to use behind the scenes? 
So what, what typical frameworks are you using? Um, what are you using in terms of iOS development, open source libraries and um, dependency managers? Let's get into some of the tech. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Uh, is my favorite part. Um, so, uh, where to begin? Um, Let's talk iOS first. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I um, I I I started iOS development like six years ago. Uh, Swift was not a thing. Um, so I'm I've gotten really entrenched in Objective C. Um, however, I will say that uh, I've started using Swift in a few projects. So. I, I've been enjoying learning it, and I think it's um, it's really what I'm focusing on from now on. So there's a lot of weird habits that I built up in Objective C that I'm trying to rework. But uh, luckily, a lot of the core stuff, like my dependency manager, like CocoaPods, um, works great with Swift and with Objective C. Um, I've written a few uh, categories in Objective C that have now carried over to Swift. Uh, and I've got a CocoaPods library for that. Are you a um, Objective C loyalist? Where you see yourself still working in Objective C in the future, or are you doing all of your future projects in Swift? Uh, it's a good question. And if you'd asked me three months ago, my answer would have been different. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when you work in a language for a long enough time, you learn to appreciate its quirks and its oddities, and you. You, you sort of there's this weird like Stockholm syndrome, where you actually don't mind uh, some of the weirdness. And I, one of those w- one example might be the brackets in Objective C. Like there are so many brackets in Objective C. Yeah. So I was like that. I, I I could you know, four or five months ago I could see myself using Objective C for the next like three years. And I think that in the end though my curiosity as a developer got the better of me. Um, and, you know, when you start a new project, you're always wondering, what am I going to use? And about, you know, I think right around that time, I was like, you know, I'm going to try Swift. I'm going to try using Swift. And the funny thing was, is that I sort of liked it. So I've stuck with it. I've not written any more Objective-C code since I've started writing in Swift. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And I, I, I sort of, I, I think what I miss the most is that is more IDE related. So Xcode uh, and Objective-C, they play really well together. Xcode is really fast at parsing Objective-C. I've never seen any syntax highlighting issues. I've never seen Xcode crash because of, you know, because because you miss a, a bracket. Um, but the number of times I've seen that with Swift is staggering. And I do think that I've probably experienced a little bit of slowdown um, in my programming speed. Uh, and not even because of the language itself, but just because Xcode just isn't uh, isn't totally bulletproof when it comes to Swift. Now you said it's, you haven't been writing any more Objective C code, uh, but you have these existing apps, and we should mention you have several apps that people who are listening to the show might be familiar with, including Pushpin, which I think is actually quite popular, right? Yeah, yeah, Pushpin's yeah really popular, more popular than I ever thought it would be. Uh, it's a uh, now, I don't know if any listeners are familiar with Pinboard, but uh, it's an iOS application, uh, you know, to, to use Pinboard. It, it's been something that I've been working on as a hobby project. I mean, I want to say that I started it in 2012. Wow. And obviously, Swift wasn't around then. So it's very much like a legacy code base. And I hate saying that, but it's... Um, when something gets worked on for so many years, 
Um, it tends to like, no matter how good of a developer you are, or how good of a developer you think you are, you really have to work incredibly hard to, um, to deal with avoiding any sort of cruft or, um, or code that you don't even understand anymore. I mean, there are a lot of times I look at that code base and I'm like, why did I do that? Or why does this make sense? But on the other hand, the app works great and it's super fast. So I, I don't really know. I'm a, a part of me is like afraid to touch it, but I do think a swift rewrite at some point will, will need to happen. Uh, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, uh, but it will happen soon. Are you mixing and matching? So would you go and take Pushpin and put a new feature in in Swift? I honestly don't know if I would. I think it could end up making things a little confusing for me. And that, I think the other part of it is that I, I think I might have tried uh, a couple of years ago, or like a year ago, and this might have actually fueled my Objective-C love a little bit. But um, Pushpin uses a... Uh, a framework to share a lot of the application logic between the app itself and the extensions. So Pushpin comes with two extensions. Uh, one is like a read later extension where you tap it when you're looking at a web page on Safari and it just sends it right to Pinboard. And another is like a share extension, extension which pops up like a, a little share sheet equivalent and you can like write in a bookmark title and save it, etc. So there are a lot of things that those uh, two extensions share with the application itself, uh, which is like the app which you click from your home screen. And so I had to bundle that into a framework, um, and that really didn't make Swift happy. I, I can't, <laughs> I would be making something up if I told you what the exact issue was, but I think I, I just gave up after trying um, mixing and matching, you know, back, you know, more than a year ago. And I finally just gave up. So I think I would just end up rewriting the entire thing. And I've heard so many times that 100% rewrites are are huge mess. But uh, I think what I would literally do is uh, just open up each source file and convert everything to Swift, as opposed to trying to be clever and rework the logic. It would basically be a syntax rewrite where I'm just rewriting it from straight from Objective C to straight to Swift. Um, so some point soon when I've got like free time, that's going to happen. But somebody, somebody should build an automated tool for that, for taking Objective-C code bases and just uh, swapping them into Swift. I'm sure they're, maybe not, I guess with, all, with some of the uh, differences in the languages, it might not be fully possible, but I'm sure somebody could build a tool that would get you started. Yeah, I mean, that, I would pay for that. Um, and like you said, it, it, there's probably a lot of complexity there that, like Objective-C has no concept of like an optional. Right. Um, so that makes things very complicated, but if someone were to come out with something like that, I'm sure they would make bank because a lot of people are interested in doing that. So, This is a really detailed technical question, but how do you share the authentication data between the main app and the share extension? I was just working on share extension for a client, and we ended up using a group shared container between the two. Is that, yep. you, is that the route you went as well? Uh, yeah, I want to say that there's a... Like, um, yeah, there's a container where you can share user defaults. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and I'm pretty sure that that's what I'm doing. It might be, it might be like the secure user defaults container. Like there's something right. where, because you're storing uh, authentication information, you want people like being able to like extract passwords from the app um, if they somehow like have access to your phone backup. Um, so I think it might be encrypted, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely like shared user defaults in some way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can open up the source code right now. <laughs> now. Let's talk about the website of things. So, so what frameworks are you typically using? I think you're a Django guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm definitely a, a Django person. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's all Python, Django. Um, I, I'm pretty, pretty familiar with setting up my own servers. So all my client's stuff is on AWS, living on Ubuntu instances. And, uh, and yeah, I, I started working in Django, like, I think in 2008, so not long after it started. So, uh, and over time, it's just, it's changed so much, but I, I absolutely love it. And I love Python, so. When you're um, doing your iOS apps, do you always build your own backend in Django, or do you ever use a backend as a service? Uh, I have actually, I, I've played around with a few backends as a service, but, um, I've never fell in love with one enough to move away from a Django-powered API backend. Um, so pretty much every iPhone app I've worked on is either powered by a third-party API, like Twitter mm-hmm. or Pinboard, or it's powered by like a Django REST framework backend, you know, where you just hit get JSON, parse JSON, and deal with it. This has been a big topic in the community the last few months, of course, with the situation with parse. If you were talking to an iOS developer who didn't have experience building their own backends and they're kind of weary of the whole backend as a service situation, how would you sell them on Django? I'd probably tell them that um, Python's a very straightforward language, just as Ruby is. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I think Rails and Django, for sake of this conversation, are fairly equivalent. You know, both are very easy, easy to understand, very easy to parse, you know, and I think as coming from a developer point of view, it's very easy to get up and running. The documentation is very well written. And frankly, if you've got a good amount of experience with the command line, with some investment, uh, you can get to a point where it's easy to deploy a server. And I will say that when I started doing web development, getting a server up and running and like... (laughs) Running running Django in production was a huge hassle, but things have really matured, and it's really not as bad as um, as it might seem. Or I, I mean, and there there's a huge bias component here, which is that I'm very comfortable with it. So um, so I, I don't want to make it seem like it's super easy to everybody. Uh, I'm just very used to it. So getting the first server up is one thing, but what about when you're working on one of these apps that turns out into a rocket ship? Like yeah. the ones we've talked about earlier, how do you go and scale that, that back end? Is that something you'll handle yourself or will you bring in somebody else to do the, um, let's say, the DevOps side of things? Um, yeah. How do you so, go doing the um, scaling? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, and it's a question I get a lot from clients too. Really, the the... The thing is that you really have to remind uh, that I have to remind myself a lot. Number one, and this and this is really unfortunate, but um, you know most startups will never need to go past one server, and it's it's something that no one really ever talks about. I think, but it's um, I mean server I mean server hardware has gotten to a point where if you can serve like a couple requests a second you're probably golden. Like, I don't want to do the math. I mean, I could do the math in my head. A couple requests a second, say five, 60 seconds in a minute. You know, that's 300 times an hour. Like, you 
get up into the tens of thousands just by changing that variable uh, by a couple hits a second. And if you can serve, you know, couple, like 10,000 people a day, 30 days in a month, that's 300,000 uniques or 300,000, 300, um, you know, requests. If you can do that, like, you know, a third of a million, that's not too bad. Now, when it gets to the real intense scaling thing, like really shooting up, uh, any sort of, you do reach a point at which you ask yourself, is it worth it to build a scaling infrastructure, something like Netflix does or has, um, that auto scales based on the time of day and how many people are using it? Now, when you're at it's the scale of like a big company like that, you know, you're, it's a totally different territory than like, okay, so uh, we've hit our first 100,000 users, now we need our first 200,000. Honestly, for most of those situations, I just ramp up another server. <laughs> AWS hardware is actually uh, pretty powerful. Um, I mean, really any sort of hardware that lives on a solid state drive is pretty powerful and not really that expensive. So it tends not to be really high in my in my like calculus, for lack of a better word. I just don't really think about it too much. Um, and it tends to work out. When do, things do get to a point, though, where it's like, oh my gosh, servers are exploding, things are going down all the time, then yeah, uh, that's the point at which you want to bring in like someone who's familiar with you know, DevOps uh, and who's got like good experience with like containers and deployment of, of containers and you know, can set up a load balancer and really uh, hit that home. But uh, it's not something that I've really chosen to focus on. Without getting into necessarily any names, would you tell us about the most challenging project that you've worked on as a consultant and why it was challenging? Uh, yeah, um, I'll need to pull like pull deep in my head here because uh, every project has its own unique challenges. Um, well, let's divide it into toughest from a technical perspective and toughest maybe from an overall project perspective. But w let's talk about one that was the toughest from a technical perspective. Oh, you know, I, I think that from a technical perspective, I, I would have to say that projects dealing with um, any sort of <laughs> um, money <laughs> okay. are, are probably the most complex uh, that I've had to deal with. Um, you know, especially when you deal with, um, with questions like when do we apply tax, when do we apply, you know, does shipping get taxed? Uh, what order do we apply discounts in? Uh, do we apply it before the subtotal, after the subtotal? And keeping that uh, sort of information up to date mm -hmm. uh, is incredibly hard. Uh, and I think uh, at the time that I was solving these issues, there, w there was nothing really uh, to make that easier. Um, today, thankfully, I, I, there are a few startups that uh, have tried to solve that problem. Uh, and one big one is Avalara. I don't know if you've heard of it. Nope. This this is a company that's like wholeheartedly like all they do is deal with tax issues. Um, so dealing with and it's tax is just insane. Like zip codes, like addresses within certain zip codes can have different tax applied, uh, can have different tax rules, um, and none of this information is just like out there on some easy to access API. So. Uh, at the time, like I believe I had to write scrapers to pull down this information. Wow, this is um, super annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's super annoying. Um, so yeah, Av Avalara is 
what really was a huge game changer there. Thankfully, no one from this point forward should really have to deal with stuff like that. But that was probably one of the more typical technical issues I've had to deal with. And the stress of having to know that, you know, any mistake you make is going to have a real big difference on the bottom line um, of the company. And you never want to be writing code that uh, puts puts your client in uh, any sort of, um, you know, weird situation with owing taxes. Uh, so stressful from that perspective and from the technical perspective, but really good learning experience. One thing you mentioned earlier is that you're not really that interested in doing business development and um, you prefer to kind of take more of a wait and see approach sometimes with um, instead of the hard sell. Yeah, um, yeah. But you do have an active social media presence, right? And you're also, you also have these apps, like we, we mentioned Pushpin earlier, that are fairly popular. Um, yep. how, how much does that help you with your business? Um, you know, I'm probably going to discourage a lot of iOS developers by saying this, but um, I, I actually can't recall getting any leads through Pushpin or any of my other apps. Um, I mean, maybe I've gotten like, I've gotten um, interested um, job candidates uh, through them, but I, I don't think I've ever gotten a client um, through uh, through an app or like reaching out through like, oh hey, like I like to push pin. Uh, you seem like you write good apps. Um, I've got a really good idea. That's never happened. Okay. Um, which is really interesting. I I, I personally th- sort of thought that that something would have come of it, but I think. It's really important to look at your audience because uh, when you're building an app and um, most people don't think twice about who made it. Um, right. Most people think it's like a big company um, or like, I, I mean, it's really easy to depersonalize an application. You just don't think about the person behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, now on the social media side, I, I think I think I've gotten like two or three clients um, from my Twitter presence. Uh, not a huge amount. I, I really have to uh, stress how important it is to have like real relationships with people. And I don't want to say this and have people like, you know, artificially reach out to people and like say, hey, like you want to like meet up for coffee with and just like talk about like work. That, that's never something that I've wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I've just generally like been friendly, tried to help people, um, and really that's all I've really done. Uh, and the work that I've done for existing clients, I've really tried to do a good job on uh, because I know that they will be my strongest advocates. Um, if I do a good job for a client and really do a great job on a site, and this is a way, this is how I actually have gotten clients is by doing a great job, founders of the company will forward me emails from people who are like, who made your website? Or who made your web app? Like, I'm interested in, in maybe talking to them. So that definitely works. Um, but really, I just, I, I think that if you love, you know, doing good work and you're really passionate about it, um, and maybe this is like an incredibly naive viewpoint, you know, the clients will sort of come to you. And I, I, I will also say that it probably doesn't work for other industries, but uh, web development and app development is an incredibly in-demand 
industry. So if you do really good work, um, you will stand out. Well, you're active on Twitter, you're active blogging. You're not afraid in either platform to be political. And a lot of people discourage that. I have a friend who is the head of a toy company. He's so afraid to be political uh, on Twitter or on Facebook that he feels very, um, I don't know, handcuffed. So so you're, you're not afraid of that. Why are you not afraid of that? You know, I'm not afraid of it because it's it's more of just like the reason I chose to be, I mean, I guess I could put it this way. I choose to work for myself um, in large part because I don't really like being beholden. You know, I, I feel like, and this applies to everything I do, you know, when I'm on the phone with a client and we're discussing a design, I, I never want to feel like I'm handcuffed in saying what I think about something. And I think that especially for um, for startups, you know, for for companies that need like that really harsh like truth sometimes, or just like a difference of opinion. I mean, and I'm not going to say that what I say is always right. It's very often wrong, but I think it's really important to have the you know conviction, I guess, just to like say what you think. And I think that that carries over for me. Uh, on Twitter with everything really. I have tried sometimes to stay away from being political, but you know, I think when something is like, when I, when I feel strongly about something, I'm going to say something about it. Um, and I don't really, because not many of my clients come from Twitter anyways, I'm sure many people who are considering working with me might look me up. It's just never really something that I, I never want to feel like I've got handcuffs, if that makes sense. Like I just, I feel like I should be able to you know, really say what I think. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Now you're in Austin, Texas. Um, we never actually got around to that when we were talking about your, your background story. Um, why did you make the move to Austin and what's the tech scene like been there for you in terms of your business? Have you met a lot of startups that you've worked with in Austin or is it just a place you love to live? I, well, first of, first of all, I mean, Austin's is a wonderful place. I'm so happy we moved here. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, um, I moved to LA after graduating from school and, um, it's a very different environment. It's a little more fast paced, sort of like how uh, New York city is. I think it's like a much more active, like, you know, you've got to like put your head to the ground, um, and get your work done. And, uh, you're surrounded by a ton of like really ambitious people. Um, in Austin, I, I have to say the same does not hold true. Uh, Austin's sort of a more like chill place. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's what drove us here. Um, now there's that. And there are a few economic reasons too. In California as a self-employed individual, it's uh, you tend to like, when you're making the money and you're writing the checks to California, you see a huge chunk of your income like being given away. And I don't want to say that it's not going to somewhere useful, but it just, you know, I, I wanted to be able to save more um, of what I made. Uh, Texas has no, no state income tax. Um, you know, real estate here is a lot cheaper. Uh, and that on top of the fact that it's sort of like a less urban, more natural environment really attracted us here. Um, so now on the client side, like, you know, 
I think just by right after I moved here, I think I like met a few people who uh, who lived here and were interested in getting to know people who had just uh, just arrived. And just from that like small group of people, um, I I met people who were interested in building things, uh, and I think I've had like five or six Austin clients who are some of them are much bigger than when I started with. Some no longer exist, um, but uh, but yeah. So it's definitely there are definitely clients here. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, you, you know, everyone I talk to who's been to Austin or lives in Austin seems to absolutely love it. You you like being a small team, it sounds like. There's been people uh, that we've had on the show who've gone from being a small team to just exploding and, you know, suddenly having 10 to 20 or more employees. Yeah. Um, you could do that, it sounds like, but you decide not to. Why have you not gone that route? You know, I, um, I, I tried last year. I really did. Um, you know, I... I was getting so much inbound, um, and I was coming off of like a really intense, like personal thing. So I felt like, you know, I really need to start growing the business because, um, when it's just me, like, I, I don't know how I can handle all of this. Um, so I did try to grow and I, I think ultimately I, um, I am just, I, I'm too interested in the work itself to be a manager. Um, and to be more of like a back office um, leader. I think I really do enjoy writing code. <laughs> and if, you, if you're the founder of a dev shop and your goal is to grow the company, I think in a lot of ways it's easier to be non-technical than it is to be technical. Because when you're non-technical, you can, you can really focus on like um, the things that matter to a growing dev shop. Like business development, um, and dealing with, um, you know, with compensation issues and making people happy and building a culture. Uh, and that, those are things that I've just never been very good at. Um, I'm, I, I will own up to my, um, my skill set, which is, you know, doing, doing the work, um, and just growing the company. And I did try, uh, and I hired a great employee, um, but ultimately, like, I just couldn't deal with the scaling. Um, so, yeah, um, it's something I've tried, but it's a lot harder to do um, than it seems. I think that's maybe the easiest way to put it. That's fair. That's fair. As we start to wrap up, let's talk about some big issues, big picture issues, excuse me. Um, so how do you feel about Apple's direction right now, especially its approach to developers? Um, are you happy with it, and where do you see them going in the next few years? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I, I, I think Apple is, um, I mean, there are almost two sides to, the, to their developer uh, relationship. Um, everyone is familiar with the App Store and how... <laughs> how bad it is for especially smaller developers. Um, you know, I don't think they've, they might've updated their search algorithm like a couple of times in the last couple of years. Um, but if you look through any section or if you're just browsing the app store, it's very clear that it's really built for games and for apps that are either free or are intended to be companion apps to services, which are already quite large. And um, th 
the entire ecosystem is not really built uh, to let small teams succeed. Now, you could probably say that about any any uh, mature industry, but um, what's different with the Apple relationship is that they are um, they are in a position where they could change things, but I think that they're they're just not interested in it. I don't, I don't know if it it's a matter of their bottom line or uh, they just they don't realize that anything's wrong. But uh, I mean, if you look back like ten years ago. Um, you know, paid upfront apps with, um, with paid updates was incredibly successful business model. And it still is for Mac applications, um, that are sold off of the Mac app store. Um, but, uh, but there's nothing, the current, you know, the iOS ecosystem doesn't, Apple doesn't even let you do that. So that entire, um, business model has essentially been, um, thrown like thrown away um and replaced with like this free within app purchase uh strategy which while it's great for consumers uh in the short run because uh everyone's scrambling to get downloads um it leads to a lot of apps which um which there's no incentive to update or improve upon so i think ultimately they're being a little short-sighted uh, and I and I do think that it would be in their best interest to, to rethink, at least in some ways, uh, how they can help developers better succeed. But so yeah, I, like as I said when I started, I think there are two sides to it. The other side is that I think um, I think Apple is putting a lot of investment in getting new new developers uh, interested in, in iOS development, and I think that they're really pushing Swift hard as a way to like learn how to program and uh, their developer tools are, are getting better. Like uh, I've, I mean, I, I think Xcode has always been sort of like a black mark uh, uh, on iOS development, um, but they have been improving it. Uh, so it's not like they've totally tossed it aside. Um, so I, and their APIs and what they're adding into iOS, it seems like it's great. It does sort of like bring up the question of like their general software quality, which I yeah. do think is you know starting to go down. Um, but I I think that they genuinely there there's a, a, a team at Apple that really wants developers to to succeed, and then there's the more there's the marketing side of Apple that just doesn't really care, and they just want you know to see the uh, clash of clans of the world. Well, I hope that's not 100% true because they just put Phil Schiller in charge of um, the App Store, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I like I, Phil a lot. Um, yeah. So I, I hope I that's too. not 100% I, true. <laughs> yeah, I really, I hope I hope that we see changes. And yeah, I, th- I don't think Phil has had that much time mm-hmm. to really do anything um, since he started uh, his new role. But uh, I hope that we see changes. And you know, WWDC is just a few months away from now. So yeah, uh, I think a lot of people are hopeful that uh, that's when we'll start to really see some like big announcements. Um, so I've got my fingers crossed. Hope okay, we'll great. Uh, one more big picture item. Um, so you mentioned some little pieces of, of advice as we've gone through the show, uh, such as being patient as a consultant, um, not being too focused on the hard sell, a big red flag when a client hasn't yet raised any money. Um, but if you had one piece of advice to people who might just be starting out in iOS or Mac consulting, what would it be? 
I would have to say that it's such a hard, it's so hard to distill into one thing, but, um, but I would say that above everything, having a good attitude and, and just being, trying to, (laughs) this is, this is probably going to sound incredibly lame, but, um, I just think it's really important to just be like a nice person. Um, and I think that there, um, it, it can, and I think that like that it's sort of a vague thing to say as like, Oh, how does this help me in like being a good consultant or, uh, making money? Um, I think there's like a way, a, a huge overemphasis in like, you know, doubling your freelance rate, like, you know, nailing down the deal, get everything in writing, all of these things like, which I, I do believe are very important, but I think that there's not enough emphasis on just trying to be a nice, good person, um, and following through with what you say you're going to follow through on. Don't lie to people. <laughs> um, and, uh, be genuinely helpful. You know, if someone asks me, for my honest feedback on something and they've never paid me a dollar in my life, I'm probably going to offer it up. Of course, there are times where I'm just like way too busy and I just literally don't have the time to do that. But, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, when that's your attitude, it's, um, it, it tends to make the people around you a lot happier. Uh, and I think people like working with happy people and it's, it, I, I don't want to say that that in any way has like contributed to my being able to have done what I love for the last couple of years, but um, I think if more people were nice and genuinely uh, helpful, it would, it would be great for everyone. Uh, so that's probably what I would say is what I would really hammer home. Is there anything that you'd like to plug, and how can people get in touch with you? What would I like to plug? Um... <laughs> um I can't say that I'm a big plugger. Uh, I mean, I, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you're welcome to, uh, like, uh, like David said, uh, I, I sometimes do get political and I sometimes do, uh, you know, I, I do say what I think, but you're welcome to follow me. Um, at DWLZ. Yep. At DWLZ. Um, and, uh, if you want to email me, um, Twitter is generally a great way to do it. Uh, you can also email me. Uh, it's just dan at lionheartsw.com. Uh, lionheartsw.com is just my company's domain. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you have any, um, you know, if you want any advice or you just want to talk, uh, feel free to reach out. Um, like I, like I just said, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to help anyone who's trying to get started. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I think the audience is really going to learn a lot from our interview. And uh, I hope that you have a great day. Thanks. I hope you do too. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next month. And before then, remember to leave us reviews on iTunes and recommend our episodes on Overcast. You can reach me on Twitter, at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Bye, everyone.